You're listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to philosopher Dr. Philip Goff. If we now want a science of consciousness, we need to rethink that picture of reality bequeathed to us by Galileo. We need to find a way to bring the qualities, the colours, the sounds, the smells and the tastes back into the scientific story. Philip shared his thoughts on a radical new understanding of consciousness called panpsychism, the relationship between consciousness and the material world, and the implications of this new theory on the modern scientific method. So Philip, your new book, Galileo's Error, explores panpsychism, an increasingly popular solve for the problem of consciousness. As you say in the book, nothing is more certain than consciousness, and yet nothing is harder to incorporate into our scientific picture of the world. So with that in mind, what's going through your head right now, and why is that such an important question? What is going through my head right now? Well, I'm having an auditory experience of your voice speaking to me. I'm having conscious thoughts arising in my mind, stimulated by the, the questions you're asking me. If I think carefully, I can, I'm can. i aware of the subtle tactile sensations of the, the chair beneath my body. If I look around me, there's colours, there's sounds. So this is all what philosophers call your conscious experience. Your consciousness is really just what it's like to be you at any given moment. And the reason this is such a challenge is that nobody has any clue how the brain manages to generate that inner world that each of us enjoys every second of waking life. This is what's become known as the hard problem of consciousness, and it's really one of one of the deepest challenges of contemporary science. Well, if consciousness is such a a hard problem, can we look towards a definition of consciousness? You're a philosopher of consciousness. Uh, Definitions are something a lot of philosophers like playing with. So if you had to take a punt, what would be your best definition for this weird thing, unexplainable thing called consciousness? Yeah, absolutely. Philosophers like to start with precise definitions I hope we don't end with definitions. We don't want to be just talking about words, but it's good to really start with a clear definition of what you're talking about, especially with consciousness, because it it is a very ambiguous word and lots of people use it in lots of different ways. Sometimes people use it to mean something quite cognitively sophisticated, like self-consciousness, awareness of one's Mm. own existence. But actually, the way it's generally used in the science and philosophy of consciousness is just to mean subjective experience, what it's like to be you right now, pleasure, pain, seeing colours, hearing sounds. So the philosopher Thomas Nagel in the 1970s famously defined it with this phrase, what it's like to be. He said, something's conscious if there's something that it's like to be it. Mm. So there's something that it's like for a rabbit to be wandering around, sniffing things, looking at the world, but there's nothing that it's like, or or at least we ordinarily suppose, to be a table. So there's something that it's like to be a rabbit, nothing that it's like to be a table. So we say that the rabbit, but not the table, is conscious. So that's all we mean, any kind of inner 
life or experience is consciousness. So the problem you're trying to tackle really in the book is is how we understand consciousness both as this this qualitative and quantitative thing. And, and you described a second ago the sorts of things that were going through your head and they were beautifully descriptive and they were qualitative. They, they had qualities to them, but they didn't explain what was happening in the brain whilst you were experiencing those things. So the qualitative and the quantitative, those are two ways through which we can understand this tricky thing called consciousness and how have they been put in confrontation with each other? Yeah, I think you're really getting to the core of why the hard problem of consciousness is so hard. Hmm. And the trouble is, if you look at the descriptions of the brain you get from neuroscience, it's a purely quantitative analysis, a quantitative description of what's going on. We hear about electrochemical signaling, neurons firing, calcium chambers, action potentials. We get this purely quantitative description. But if you think about your own conscious experience, it involves these rich qualities, the smell of coffee, the taste of mint, that deep red you experience as you watch mm. the setting sun. And you can't really capture these kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative language of neuroscience or of physical science more generally. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in these purely quantitative terms, we really just end up leaving out the qualities and hence leaving out consciousness itself. Mm. So that's why I think this isn't just you know, another scientific problem and we'll solve and we just do a few more experiments. It's something that's tied into our very scientific approach for the last 400 years has been purely quantitative, whereas consciousness is in as an essentially qualitative phenomenon is always going to be to some extent not totally pinned down in those terms. Well, we have someone to blame for that scientific worldview, don't we? It's, <laughs> it's the individual that features on the front of your book, because in 1623, Galileo made this radical declaration that mathematics should be the language of science. And by making that sort of statement, he created a certain theory of reality. And how did that theory of reality account for, or I guess in, in this case, discount the qualitative aspect of experience? Yeah, absolutely. Galileo is to blame for all of this. <laughs> although, <laughs> although actually, I mean, I'm actually a huge fan of Galileo and I think he understood a lot of this stuff, in fact, better than we do now. So yeah, we often forget there's a, there's a philosophy behind science mm. and that philosophy was pretty much single-handedly put together by Galileo in the 17th century near the start of the scientific revolution. Galileo wanted science to be purely mathematical, something we mm. take for granted now. He wanted this purely quantitative science, but there was a challenge for him. Before Galileo, the world seemed to be filled with qualities. You look at objects, there's colours on the surfaces of objects, tastes in food, mm. spicy tastes in food, smells floating through the air, and you can't capture these kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative language of mathematics. An equation can't capture the, the blueness of a blue experience. Mm. So Galileo got round this problem by formulating a radically new philosophical theory of reality. And according to that theory, the qualities 
aren't really out there in the material, physical world. They're in the soul, the consciousness of the soul.、Mm. So Galileo kind of carves up reality into these two radically different domains: the quantitative physical world, which is the domain of the new mathematical science, and the qualitative world of consciousness, the soul with its qualities of colors, sounds, smells, tastes.、Mm. So this gave science a limited, focused task. By putting consciousness and its qualities out of the way, you could just capture everything else in mathematics. This is the start of mathematical physics. It's gone incredibly well, and I think we're now at a phase of history where it's gone so well, people are like, "Oh, that's everything. That's the truth of everything." You know, we've got the all the answers. But ironically, it's gone so well because it was designed to be a partial description of reality. And specifically, one that excluded consciousness outside of the domain of science.、Mm. If we now want a science of consciousness, we need to rethink that picture of reality bequeathed to us by Galileo. We need to find a way to bring the qualities, the colours, the sounds, the smells, and the tastes back into the scientific story. So, in other words, Galileo basically felt like. Well, if we can't explain it, then it、eh, probably doesn't even matter. And I guess, as you just said there, in, in, to be in defence of material and physical science, just for a second, I mean, it has this scientific worldview, this materialist, mechanistic scientific worldview, has given rise to to new technologies. Why does consciousness even need to be part of this if we've been so successful with this materialist way of seeing the world? Yeah, I mean, Galileo. Was being pragmatic, and、yeah. <laughs> it was a good move, perhaps. Although I have this provocative title of my book, it was Galileo's error. You know, it was maybe a good move to give science that narrow, manageable task. And as you say, by focusing on what we can capture mathematically, we can formulate equations that can capture the rich structure, causal, behavioral structure of reality, and that can enable us to produce incredible technology. So that's all wonderful. I'm not getting rid of any science. I'm not telling neuroscientists or physicists that they、mm. they need to do their job properly. <laughs> What I'm calling for, I guess, is a more expansive conception of science. Why do we need that more expansive conception of science? Well, I think it's all fine until you say that's the complete story of reality,、mm. and I think the story we're getting from the physical science, as rich as it is. Cannot be the complete story of reality.、Mm. Why not? Because there is something else we know to be real, namely the reality of our own feelings and experiences. And this is not something I think we know about scientifically in the sense of from experiments or observations. Consciousness isn't something we discovered in a particle collider.、Mm-hmm. We know about consciousness in a very different way, just through the immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. If you're in pain, you're just Directly aware of your pain, so we know、mm. about it in a very different way. But it's nonetheless part of reality, and in a sense, it's the most important part of reality. I think you know, fundamentally, we relate to each other as creatures with feelings and experiences. You know, consciousness, I'd say, is the root of everything that really matters in life, from deep emotions to subtle thoughts to pleasures and wonderful sensations. I think it's a matter of what we want as as philosophers is to have a A worldview, a picture of reality、mm. that can accommodate all the things we know to be real, and I think our current official scientific worldview is unable to accommodate 
the reality of human consciousness, as Galileo knew full well when he designed physics to exclude it. I mean, to some degree, do, do you think that scientific worldview, it, it makes us feel alienated by mm. throwing out these intuitive ways in which we feel and emote about certain things and dismissing them because they can't be reduced to mathematical understanding? Do we begin to feel individually as human beings slightly disenchanted about our place in the world? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we're going for a strange period of history. Mm. I think our official scientific worldview is incompatible with the reality of the thing that is in a way most evident, our own mm. feelings and experiences, and the thing gives life meaning and significance. I mean, the way to see this is, you know, just think about your experience right now, the colours, the sounds, the smells, the tastes. Our official scientific worldview tells us all that's really going on in your head is the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling. And I think that's really tantamount to say that those qualities don't really exist. And I think this can lead to, you know, a deep sense of alienation. Mm. I think people maybe lack a framework in which they can make sense of the meaning and significance of their lives. I think this can matter because in the absence of such a framework, people look to other ways of making sense of the meaning of their lives. You know, consumerism, mm. uh, fundamentalist religion, nationalism. What I think other pictures of reality can offer us is a worldview that can accommodate the quantitative uh, data we get from physical science, but can also accommodate the qualitative reality of human consciousness. That worldview that you're referring to is called panpsychism. It's what you tackle in this new book. So for our audience, could you explain what panpsychism is? Yeah. So I guess in our standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly developed organisms. And so really only exists in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history, at least cosmically speaking. But according to panpsychism, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So it, it doesn't literally mean that everything is conscious. Hmm. The, the basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps fundamental particles like quarks and electrons, have incredibly simple forms of experience the rich and complex experience of the human or the animal brain is somehow rooted in or derived from much more rudimentary forms of consciousness at the, at the level of fundamental physics. So it sounds a bit crazy, but more and more philosophers and even some neuroscientists are starting to think it might be our best hope for making progress on the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, and I think that's very important to emphasize because when people hear panpsychism, they go, wait a minute, Philip, what are you talking about? Do you mean that rocks have consciousness? Objects have consciousness? And that's such a fundamental misunderstanding of panpsychism, isn't it? But I guess it comes from the etymology of the word. There's pan within panpsychism. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, the word does literally mean everything, pan everything, has psyche mind. <sighs> so as I said, the idea would be that the fundamental building blocks of reality have experience, but it doesn't mean every random arrangement of particles has its own consciousness. Mm. So it doesn't mean that rocks and socks are conscious. It just means that they're ultimately made up of 
things which are conscious. But even then, we're not saying that electrons have the kind of consciousness a human being has, that they're sitting there feeling existential angst or feeling very bored. <laughs> you know, that kind of very sophisticated consciousness a human being has comes from millions of years of evolution by natural selection. But you have consciousness comes in in lots of different shapes and sizes. You know, you have the, the rich consciousness of a human being, the consciousness of a horse is maybe a bit simpler, consciousness of a mouse, simpler still. And as we move to simpler and simpler forms of life, we find simpler and simpler forms of conscious experience. So for the panpsychist, this just continues right down to the the basic building blocks of matter. Actually, I mean, some panpsychists do think literally everything is conscious. The, the panpsychist Luke Roloff does think that, you know, literally everything is conscious. But even then, the consciousness of a rock is not going to be nothing like, it's going to be just some kind of meaningless mess. It's not going to be like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do today. <sighs> but in general, I mean, I'm more inclined to think the conditions under which very simple conscious entities combine to make more complex conscious entities are pretty rare and that natural selection, as it were, discovered and exploited this. So I'm probably inclined to think that, I mean, this is still early days in the science of consciousness, but I'm inclined to think that the biological realm may be filled with consciousness, cells, molecules, but outside of that, maybe consciousness exists more or less just at the level of fundamental physics. Well, there's been a lot of attempts in the modern age to try and explain where consciousness, for want of a better phrase, comes from. And, and one of the popular ideas is that it's just an emergent property of the complexity of matter. So in other words, when matter gets complex enough, pop, consciousness appears within nature. It's, it's close to what Terence McKenna used to talk about when he was saying, look, give us one free miracle and science will explain the rest. We'll explain the rest. I mean, it, how do you feel about this idea that we can just chalk consciousness up to something as simple and yet as magical as emergence? Yeah, I mean, so there are huge debates here. I mean, fundamentally, my issue with the standard materialist emergentist picture is, well, we come back to this chasm that exists between <laughs> the quantitative and the qualitative. So the first point to make is that you can't capture, as I've already suggested, the qualities of experience in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience. Mm. You couldn't convey to a colorblind neuroscientist what it's like to see red. Hmm. I mean, there's lots of things you can say about in the language of neuroscience about color experience, you know, you can, colors has, has various dimensions like hue, saturation, brightness, and you can map colors into a, a similarity space on that basis. But that kind of purely structural information can't convey to a blind neuroscientist the redness of a red experience, the qualities that fill out that structure. Mm. Okay, so that's a kind of descriptive limitation of physical science. But I think it entails an explanatory limitation. Because suppose I were to come up with my brilliant neuroscientific theory that explained in physical terms the redness of a red experience, that deep red you what you see as you watch the setting sun. In your theory, you'd first have to describe the redness of a red experience hmm. in the quantitative language of neuroscience, and then you'd have to reductively explain it in terms of 
patterns of neural firings or whatever. If you can't even describe it in that language, then you certainly can't reductively explain it. So I think that's a very strong, in principle, argument that important as neuroscience of consciousness is in so many ways, it's always just going to leave out these qualities. And hence, I mean, it's all very well to say, oh, it's emergent, but look, we want an explanation of how it emerges. In most cases of emergence, what you're talking about is complex behavior, right? Mm. Maybe a complex behavior of a weather system. And that's the kind of thing you can intelligibly explain in terms of mechanisms or ultimately particles, the behavior of simpler things, right? Ultimately, the behavior of a complex weather system is explicable in terms of the behavior of simpler things. That's not what we're trying to explain when we're trying to explain consciousness. We're trying to explain these subjective qualities that we are directly aware of in our experience, and they can't even be captured in that kind of language. So it's a it's a totally different explanatory enterprise. Mm. And that's why I, I don't think we can just assume the normal scientific approach is going to apply here. You've used that word language multiple times in your answering of that question. Do you think at the end of the day, metaphor is our best way of describing consciousness? Is consciousness and language, are they intimately tied together? You said previously that we can only explain what something is like and, and a metaphor functions in that way. You know, that our experience is kind of like this. Red is kind of like that. This smell is kind of like this other thing. Is the only way to understand our everyday reality to bottleneck it through human language. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think you want to understand consciousness. What you should do is read literature, you know, read James Joyce. Yeah. Consciousness <laughs> yeah. is what it's like to be a human being. Yep. And the best way we have to capture that is, is art or literature. I mean, that's another way of saying why well, this isn't just a normal scientific problem, because what science does in general, Thomas Nagel called the view from nowhere. You try to have a description of reality that could be understood by anyone, no matter what their life experience. You know, if there were aliens that came from another planet, if they had very different sensory organs, they might not understand our art or music. But if they were intelligent enough to know mathematics, they could understand our physics. So you try to have this view from nowhere. Whereas consciousness, to understand the consciousness of an organism, you need to be able to adopt its perspective, to see out of its eyes, hear out of its ears. That's why the philosopher, again, Thomas Nagel, we're back to, famously argued, no matter how much we know about the neurophysiology of a bat, there'll always be something we're missing, namely what it's like to be a bat. Because hmm. we can't really put ourselves in the perspective of a creature that echolocates its way around the world. So yeah, so consciousness is all about adopting the perspective of another organism. And that's why, you know, that there may be details here we can never fill in. Yep. But what I'm trying to do as a philosopher rather than a, a writer is I'm interested in the question of how can we account for the existence of consciousness? Mm. How can we have a an overall theory of reality, a worldview that is equipped to accommodate the truths we get from natural science, but also the reality of conscious experience. I think our current materialistic worldview is just unable to do that. 
but there are alternatives that look more promising, such as panpsychism. Well, I think we can all agree that consciousness exists. I mean, we all have that intuitive feeling of being conscious. I mean, there's other philosophical worldviews that suggest we're the only conscious entity and everybody else around us is just a projection of our own mind. But I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But is consciousness something that we actually have? Is it something that's generated by us or to swing the pendulum the other way, away from this idea that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain? Could consciousness be a pre-existing condition of the universe itself? And in other words, is consciousness something that exists outside of our skull that we may perhaps, for example, tune into? Yeah. So, I mean, just on the first point, you say we all agree that consciousness exists. I mean, the vast majority of people do, but actually there are some philosophers who get around this hard problem of consciousness by just denying the reality of consciousness. But I mean, that's a reflection, I guess, of what a deep mystery this is. So one way of confronting the the fact that we can't take a conventional scientific approach to consciousness is to just say, well, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it's just like magic or furry dust. You know, it's something Mm. that we now know not to be real. But yeah, so does consciousness exist outside of our skulls? Does it exist in the universe more generally? In a way, the panpsychist approach is that all there is is consciousness, really. At the fundamental level of Mm. reality, consciousness is all there is. Hmm. The normal way of approaching it is to start with matter and think, how do you get consciousness out of that? And I think that problem is really unsolvable. But the panpsychist turns that on its head and says, let's start with consciousness Mm. and account for matter in terms of consciousness. For the panpsychist, consciousness is the ultimate nature of matter. And now that sounds kind of really hard to make sense of at first. How can how can consciousness be the ultimate nature of matter? Don't uh-huh. we look to science to tell us what consciousness is? But actually, I mean, when you look to physics, what you get is a purely mathematical characterization of, of reality. On a standard view, what we have at the fundamental level is, is what's called the wave function, a very high dimensional mm. object that physicists characterize in purely mathematical terms. You know, there's a couple of ways you can react to this fact that that physics is purely mathematical. One approach the physicist Max Tegmark takes is to say, well, maybe at the basic fundamental level, reality is just purely mathematical. It's just pure maths. Mm -hmm. But another approach which the panpsychist takes is to say, well, maybe there's something that fills out, that realizes that mathematical structure the physics identifies. So for the panpsychist, it's consciousness that plays that role. Stephen Hawking at the end of The Brief History of Time famously said, physics at root just gives you equations and doesn't tell you what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So for the panpsychist, it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations. All there really is for the panpsychist at the fundamental level is consciousness. And the job of The physicist is to describe the mathematical structure of that consciousness at the fundamental level. Mm. And, you know, that sounds kind of really weird. You know, if you're doing physics, you don't seem to be describing consciousness, fundamental consciousness. But that's just because as a physicist, you're just interested in the mathematical structure. You're not interested in 
what, if anything, underlies that mathematical structure. That's rather a, a philosophical question. I mean, some individuals take that even one step further. Someone like Rupert Sheldrake, I mean, he argues that whether it's his idea of morphic resonance or some form of consciousness that's out there is actually guiding biological evolution, that the reason we have come into being in the way in which we have is because consciousness, uh, for want of a better word, it, it kind of had a had a plan. There's a form of, it's a problematic idea, but there's a form of intelligent design there guided by some form of consciousness that pre-existed to us. Yeah, I've had a lot of a lot of interesting conversations with, with Rupert Sheldrake. <laughs> so I always want to emphasize that panpsychism need not be wrapped up with anything spiritual or mystical. Mm. A lot of contemporary panpsychists like David Chalmers or, or Luke Roloffs are you know, total atheist secularists. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in any transcendent reality. They just believe in feelings and experiences, pleasure, pain. Now, these things are obviously real and we need a worldview that can account for them. So if that is what you're trying to do with panpsychism is just explain mundane human consciousness, then although you think consciousness is everywhere, you're not going to think it's any kind of divine or transcendent form of consciousness. Probably you just think consciousness at the fundamental level is just some kind of meaningless mess. Mm. However, at the same time, I think panpsychism is a a picture of reality that's maybe more consonant with certain spiritual worldviews. Mm. It's less of a leap to those kinds of worldviews if you think there is independent motivation to take them seriously. Maybe if you take mystical experiences seriously and you think there's this higher form of consciousness at the fundamental level. I mean, if you're a materialist, you kind of have to think that's just a delusion. Hmm. But if you're a panpsychist and you, you already think there's consciousness at the fundamental level, it's it's less of a leap to take mystical experiences seriously. Also, I mean, one thing I, I've tentatively explored in my work is whether panpsychism helps us with the so-called fine-tuning of physics for life, this mm. surprising discovery of the last, you know, since the 1970s onwards, a surprising discovery that possibility of life is balanced on a knife edge, that yeah. many of the, the the numbers in basic physics, the strength of gravity, the uh, mass of the electron, the uh, cosmological constant, that we, which we just identified in the 1990s, are exactly as they need to be Mm. for life to be possible. Well, of course, we always knew that they were going to be compatible with the existence of life. What we didn't know is that for life to be possible, those numbers would have to fall in a very narrow range so that it looks on the face of it incredibly improbable that a universe like ours would be compatible with the existence of life. And yet somehow we won the cosmic lottery and got exactly the right numbers. So this is a big puzzle that in a way I think, you know, we didn't expect and we're still trying to kind of process as a scientific community. So some people explain this in terms of God, Mm. maybe, uh, you know, God created the universe and fixed the right numbers so that life is possible. Others explain it in terms of the multiverse. Maybe there's a huge number of universes with very, each with different numbers in their physics so that just it becomes statistically highly likely that you'll you'll fluke on one universe with the right numbers for life. So what I've tentatively explored is a kind of panpsychist approach that if you already think, as some versions of panpsychism do, that the the universe is a kind of conscious entity, Mm. then we might be able to make sense of such a conscious entity having some kind of 
goal-directed behavior that in some sense the universe designed itself. On the face of it, that's what the fine-tuning does look like. It looks like goal-directed behavior. And that's weird. And we didn't expect it. And But, you know, the Enlightenment ideal, I think a lot of people are in denial about it, to be honest. But the Enlightenment ideal is to just follow the evidence where it leads. And it does seem on the face of it, looks like goal-directed behavior. So maybe if you already have some kind of panpsychist picture, then we can put that to use in accounting for the cosmological fine-tuning. That's an independent motivation than just explaining mundane human consciousness. I mean, is that similar to to Peter Russell's global brain or James Lovelock's Gaia theory, the idea that Mother Earth quite literally has some form of differentiated consciousness that is guiding the conditions on Earth to sustain something like life? Yeah. And, you know, it, it would be interesting to map out the similarities and differences. There's, there's clearly something analogous going on there. What I've explored is really, sounds like an extravagant hypothesis, but actually I've tried to suggest it. it's not really adding much, if anything, to what we're already committed to in a standard scientific picture of things. Because, you know, science just gives us this mathematical structure. It doesn't tell us what fills out what realizes, what underlies that mathematical structure. So adding consciousness to play that role is not really going far beyond the scientific picture. Also, I mean, what this great Scottish philosopher David Hume pointed out a couple of hundred years ago was that actually science tells us what happens. It doesn't really tell us why it happens. You know, Newton came up with this wonderful equation to describe the behavior of matter that matter attracts with a force, you know, proportional to the the mass and the distance between two objects. And then people said to Newton, but why? Why does that happen? (laughs) And Newton, I have to remember the Latin now, what did he say? Hypothesis non fingo, I think it was. I don't frame hypotheses. So he says, yes, it's the job of physics just to describe these mathematical laws. We don't say why things behave according to these mathematical laws. So actually, I think this is more of an open philosophical question, a worldview question of what in reality accounts for the mathematical structures and the causal laws that natural science tracks. And you might say, you know, well, well why, why take it in this rather spiritual sounding direction of thinking there's some directionality or teleology, isn't that the kind of stuff we kicked out at the start of the scientific revolution? Mm. My answer to that is stop working with your a priori preconceived idea about how science is supposed to be and look at what current best physics is telling us. And current best physics seems to me to suggest in the fine tuning, some kind of goal-directed activity in the very early stages of the universe. So that's, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not very comfortable with myself and I feel a bit silly talking about it because that's my kind of secular upbringing. But the more I, I've read kind of basically all the philosophical literature on fine, that's probably an exaggeration. I've read a lot, a lot of the, the literature on this stuff and 
it seems to me a, a very solid phenomenon that we need to give some account of and that's the best I can do. It does feel like even though metaphor is a useful way to describe those qualitative experiences, when we use metaphor to describe those quantitative aspects, that's where we start hitting the wall because it's popular in the 21st century to describe the human brain as a form of machine, like a type of computer. And what you're doing essentially is processing ideas and the brain, that three pounds of grey gloop, it's essentially like a PC, a hard drive, and whatever consciousness is, the software programs running on that hard drive. But as David Eagleman so beautifully described to me on this uh, podcast, he said, well, look, yes, it could be like a computer, but it also could be like an FM radio. You know, we, we could find this thing and, and mess with the wires inside of the radio, realize the voices are changing inside the radio and assume that messing with those wires is causing the voices to change with absolutely no conception that the voices are being transmitted from somewhere else. And it does feel like we're getting more comfortable with this idea of there being two possible legitimate explanations for what consciousness is. One Perhaps, yes, it could be an emergent property of the brain, or perhaps it could be something that the brain actually tunes into. And a lot of good neuroscientists will actually admit that when they put a brain under an MRI machine, they can see all the bits of the brain light up, but they have absolutely no clue what those things are actually doing. So do you think that we should maintain an openness to a multitude of approaches when it comes to things like neuroscience, because if we don't, we're going to end up in a situation where we're going to be only chasing down one path and we could end up leaving a lot behind if we choose to pursue only one philosophical worldview for the mind. Yeah, absolutely. It is very early days in the science of consciousness. Yeah. You know, some people get annoyed at me being friends with, it's called illusionism, the view that consciousness doesn't exist. It's a, it's a trick played on us by the brain hmm. to make us think we're conscious when we're not. And some of my panpsychist comrades think this is a load of nonsense. Why are you dealing with it? But I just think it's such early days that we need to try out all sorts of possibilities because who knows, you know, where the truth is going to lie. And I mean, in the other direction, in terms of panpsychism, I think it used to be laughed at and the laughter has sort of changed to anger a little bit because certain senior members of the profession are getting increasingly annoyed that this is taken so seriously and is overturning what their philosophical upbringing taught them to take seriously or not take seriously. I mean, in terms of neuroscience, it's important to bear in mind what it can do and what it can't mm. because there's an important difficulty at the heart of consciousness science, which is that consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon. Yeah. You, know, you can't look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences, right? Hmm. Science is used to dealing with unobservables, fundamental particles or quantum wave functions or multiverses or whatever. Hmm. These things can't be observed, but there's an important difference because in all of these cases, Science postulates things you can't observe in order to explain the things you can observe. But in the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain cannot be publicly observed. So that's not to say we can't deal with it scientifically. Of course we can. But what we have to do is, although you can't observe someone's consciousness, 
you can ask them what they're feeling and experiencing. And if you do that while you scan their brain, you can start to identify correlations between certain kinds of brain activity and certain kinds of conscious experience, right? And that's a very important experimental task. But that's not the end of a theory of consciousness, because what we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of those correlations. Why is it that certain kinds of brain activity go along with certain kinds of conscious experience? And because consciousness is not publicly observable, that's just not a question you can answer with an experiment. Hmm. There are various philosophical proposals as to what's going on in reality to account for those correlations. And we just have to try and assess those proposals as best we can. We just have to face the fact that we, we just can't answer every question with another experiment, especially when you're dealing with something that's not publicly observable. What has surprised me, just the more I talk to neuroscientists and read neuroscience, how little we actually know about the brain. Mm. I mean, basically, we, we have a good grip on the basic chemistry, how neurons fire, action potentials, calcium chambers how basic signaling works. And we have a, a fair grip on many of the large-scale functions of the brain, what big bits of the brain do. <laughs> what we are almost clueless on is how large-scale functions are realized at the cellular level, basically how it works. You know, we're only 70% of the way through building a connectome for the maggot brain with its 10,000 neurons, whereas the human brain has 86 billion neurons. You know, I think people get very excited by brain scans. Mm. It's very low resolution. Every pixel on a brain scan corresponds, I think, to 2.2 million neurons. So, I mean, you're talking about kind of model of consciousness where it's my consciousness is not in my brain. I sort of tune into it. Panpsychism needn't go in that direction. The panpsychist could agree with the materialist no, it's just in my brain. Mm. Consciousness, there's other consciousness out there, outside of my brain. Consciousness is everywhere, but my consciousness is just in my brain. The panpsychist could just have that approach, but they could also have the approach you're suggesting. And I think that ultimately that will be an empirical scientific question, which, which of those views is correct. But at this stage, we're a long way from knowing enough about the brain to settle that. At this stage, it's difficult to identify if there were signals that we were receiving from out there. And then the question is, even if it, it does it even look like an organic wave style signal? Could it be some form of quantum superposition that's transmitting this the form of consciousness? And even transmitting might actually be the, the wrong metaphor. But we talk about consciousness as a singular. Could it be a case that it's consciousnesses? Could there be a multiple different ways we're engaging and our brain is dealing with this quality? reality? Could we have uh, one form of consciousness which basically just deals with the interpretation of reality through the bottleneck of the sense organs, and then other forms of consciousnesses that we happen to either have or receive that deal with the domain of memory or imagination? I mean, there's nothing to believe that whatever's dealing with memory or our imaginative sense has anything to do with how we process reality through the sense organs. Yeah, I mean, maybe this comes back partly to the ambiguity of the word consciousness and mm. lots of things we mean by that. I mean, one thing we mean is is just the capacity of a cognitive system to monitor its own internal states and record information about them and use that to govern behavior. 
This is closely related to, I guess, what the philosopher Ned Block called access consciousness. So mm. Ned Block distinguished phenomenal consciousness, which is what we've mainly been talking about, what it's like to be a human being from access consciousness, which is a sort of mechanistically defined notion. A system has, you now a robot could have access consciousness if it can monitor its own internal states, even if it doesn't have any kind of experience, even if there's nothing that mm. it's like to be the robot. And it's it's very important to clearly distinguish these two notions. You know, we started off saying philosophers like defining words, and sometimes it, it's, it feels like you're a professional pedant or something. But it's very important <laughs> because there's been a lot of books that have said, I'm solving the hard problem of consciousness. Mm. And they start off talking about phenomenal consciousness, what it's like to be a human being, the deep mystery. But then subtly as the book goes on, at some point they change it to really talking about access consciousness, you know, the capacity of a system to monitor its own states. And then they give us some kind of mechanistic explanation of that. You know, you can give a mechanistic explanation of access consciousness. That's not a surprise because it's a it's a mechanistically defined notion. So yeah, it's it's really important to distinguish these different notions of consciousness and different notions. I mean, when we get into AI and stuff, different notions of what we mean by intelligence, what we mean by understanding, what exactly we're trying to track with these ideas mm -hmm. can be all over the place. And I mean, this that's the the one thing the philosopher has to contribute is, you know, precisely defining these different notions. But I happen to think, you know, it can be quite important. I mean, could it be that consciousness is actually, it's not an individualist thing. It's not the me, my consciousness. What if consciousness was actually relational? What if I need you, Philip, and you need me? And in actual fact that the only way we can recognize consciousness is to actually recognize in other beings and therefore recognize it in Ourself Is it part of the mechanistic, materialist, individualist, capitalist, consumerist worldview that makes us individualist, <laughs> which then makes us think, oh, I have a consciousness and my consciousness is so important. Could it actually be that your consciousness is the important thing for making me realize that I have a consciousness? Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. And there are hardcore facts in physics that point to a greater connectedness in reality, the phenomenon of, of quantum entanglement, this mm. bizarre phenomenon where, you know, you can have two particles entangled so that even though they're in different parts of the universe, so, such that there's no time for a signal to pass between them, they're correlated in a certain way, such that if you measure one to be spin up, the other one will be spin down or vice versa. So so we know as, as, as a matter of solid physics, you know, this is Einstein didn't like it. He, you know, he, he called it spooky action at a distance. He didn't he didn't want to believe in quantum entanglement. But it, it very much looks like these two particles are behaving as a unified whole. It's not that information is passing between them, that there isn't enough time even for light to pass between them, but they're still behaving nonetheless as a unified whole. The philosopher Jonathan Schaffer, building on this, has proposed a monistic view of reality where rather than thinking of um, reality as being built up of little particles, a sort of Lego brick picture reality, actually the one fundamental thing is the universe as a whole, that unified system, that unified entity. And we understand 
ordinary objects and stars and planets and people and tables and chairs as somehow derivative from, somehow abstracted from that more fundamental unity. And there are kinds of panpsychism developed in this way known as cosmopsychism. So you combine this view with mm. panpsychism, you get cosmopsychism, the view that the one fundamental entity is the conscious universe. And actually, I mean, this fits better with, you know, many theoretical physicists prefer to think not in terms of particles, but in terms of universe-wide fields. Mm. And then particles are just understood as kind of local vibrations in those universe-wide fields. So if you combine that view with panpsychism, then the fundamental forms of consciousness, the intrinsic nature of these universe-wide fields and the fundamental conscious entity is is the bearer of those fields, the universe itself. Again, you need not take that in a sort of spiritual direction. You needn't think that the universe is kind of God or a, an agent or something. You mm. could just think its consciousness is going to be very complex because the universe is complex, but it might just be a sort of meaningless mess. On the other hand, if you're impressed by things like the, the fine-tuning, that might give you grounds for thinking the universe is some kind of agent in some sense, although of a very alien kind to us naturally evolved creatures. It might not have the kind of cognitive flexibility mm -hmm. that us naturally evolved creatures have. What I was really trying to uh, to coax out of you is whether it could be the fact that the only way to recognize consciousness is the fact that we see it in other beings and other people. The only reason we even consider ourselves conscious is because we're able to have, I guess, a form of empathy with other mm. entities, whether forms of animal, non-human animal or, or other humans. And that creates this this understanding of a collective consciousness. One thing I do tentatively ex explore in the book is something we've kind of touched on already, whether taking mystical experiences more seriously mm. is something that's easier to do within a panpsychist framework. So, you know, throughout many different traditions across time, people have had these experiences when it seems to them that there is this higher form of consciousness underlying all things mm. and that it's not in some way separate from us it's in, in some way all individual forms of consciousness are just local forms of that one universal consciousness you know the cliched phrase we're all one mm. again you know if you're a materialist you're probably going to have to think that's a delusion because you know this doesn't seem to be the story we get from basic physics that the universe is filled with consciousness. But if you are a panpsychist, you needn't think that fundamental form of consciousness is something supernatural or outside of the physical universe. You could think that it's just what fills out the mathematical structure of physics. Mm. Panpsychism is a sort of a wonderful middle way between a kind of on the one hand, a supernaturalist vision where there's there's something outside the physical universe, something beyond it. Uh -huh. On the other hand, a very orthodox materialist view where there's just what we get from physics. So this view says, in a sense, there's just matter. There's just particles and fields. But what is matter? All physics tells us about matter is its mathematical structure. So there must be something that fills out, that realizes that mathematical structure. Maybe part of what realizes that mathematical structure is 
this higher form of consciousness which is which is known in the mystical experience i mean this is just hmm. wild speculation that i entertained in the last chapter of my book so that's that's one way of making sense of, of what you're saying i guess i'm i'm a, i'm a big fan of rene descartes and you know rene descartes said i can doubt the existence of everything except my own conscious mind uh-huh. cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am that's the one thing i'm certain of it seems to me at least conceivable that nothing else exists, just me, just my conscious mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's real, but that does suggest to me in some sense my existence is separate from your existence, that I could exist without you, you could exist without me. But maybe, maybe there's some component of each of us that is had in common, that is something deeper underlying. Mm. Wonderful Australian philosopher Miri Albahari. She's been working on a book for a long time. I'm hoping uh, she finishes soon. But in various papers, she's defended a kind of um, Hindu mystical theory of reality based in um, Advaita Vedanta, where there is some sort of higher form of consciousness underlying all things. And what's wonderful is, like me, she comes out of the tradition of analytic philosophy which is a tradition that's come to be very rigorous, scientific, logic-based tradition. So she's defending this mystical philosophy, but with the tools of, you know, rigorous, mm-hmm. logical, analytic philosophy. She defends, for example, the epistemological credibility of expert meditators. We can think of experienced meditators as a kind of expert testimony that it's rationally permissible to take seriously in theorizing about reality. So she's developing in this really cold-blooded, rigorous way, this incredible mystical vision of reality. And that's, you know, something very new and interesting. don't know if it's true, but... It's funny that there has been a drive to sort of bottleneck spiritual experiences through science. I mean, Rupert does that and Rupert Sheldrake does that to some degree as well with his work, Science and Spirituality. It's like you're not allowing something just to be mystical. It has to, in some way, shape or form, be forced through the bottleneck of science. And we have to find some sort of rough scientific explanation to allow these things to exist in our way of being. Sometimes it could just be the case that, hey, maybe some Something's just weird, and maybe we're never going to know. And 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 that's really comes to the core of my next question, which is: Should we just let consciousness remain outside of the domain of science, or should we just come to the acceptance that maybe we're never going to understand it? And the reason we're never going to understand it is because we're conscious beings, and there's a limitation of consciousness understanding itself. Sure, the brain can name itself and the brain can study itself, but when it comes to consciousness uh, looking at itself and understanding then what it is, I mean, that'll create a feedback loop where, you know, (laughs) nothing, nothing is going to make sense to us. Yeah, no, these are deep questions. I think we are going through a period of history where the, the dominating philosophy, even religion, is is what I call scientism, that yep. the only way to find out about reality is through the scientific method. I mean, I think it's because natural science has gone so well, and that leads people to think, yes, we've finally found the right method, and, and that's very reassuring, and, and it gets into people's kind of identity. People talk of religion as a crutch, but I think a certain kind of 
scientism can really get into people's identity as well. Yeah. I mean, in my view, the reason it's gone so well is because it has been focused on a quite narrow specific task, the task of accounting for the data of public observation and experiments. Yeah. But I think there are many things we know to be real that don't fit into that category. So consciousness is one. Consciousness is not known about through observation experiments. We didn't discover it looking through a microscope. We know about it through our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. Another is mathematical entities, numbers and sets and functions. Colleagues in, in mathematics departments discover incredible things about the realm of mathematics. I mean, again, these are not things known about through looking through telescopes. They're known about through mathematical intuition. Mm. A slightly more controversial example, value, facts about value, not just mo moral value, but also value in epistemology, that is to say, in our theory of knowledge, the fact that you shouldn't believe contradictions, the fact that you should apportion your belief to the evidence. Mm. These facts about value that actually underpin science are not known about through experiments. They're known about through rational intuition. So I think what we've forgotten about is, is the value of philosophy, the value of worldview construction, of trying to construct a worldview able to accommodate, yes, the facts known through natural science, but other kinds of things we know to be real, to bring them all together in a, in a grand unified theory of reality. Because it happens anyway. And if you don't explicitly understand what it is and train people to do philosophy properly, then you get a slightly impoverished version. This can lead to a deep sense of alienation. You know, I think we know we have feelings and experiences. I think our official worldview is incompatible with that. We know that human trafficking is morally abhorrent. Mm. And yet our official scientific worldview tells us we're in this kind of meaningless universe. I think this is problematic even for people's mental health. I think we do need a worldview that can accommodate all the things we know to be real. It might not be possible to fill in all the details, particularly with consciousness, because you have to be able to adopt the perspective of something. We might never be able to know what it's like to be a bat. Hmm. We might never be able to know what it's like to be an electron. Although there is a great paper by Pat Lutus called what, What's It Like to Be a Quark? But <laughs> I, you know, I'm skeptical we can ever really shed much light on that. You know, I don't think we should give up too quickly. I wouldn't say we can't have a science of consciousness. I think we just need to rethink what science is. And finally, it depends what you're trying to do. If you're trying to understand human consciousness, don't do neuroscience, don't do philosophy, just read literature, meet people. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to live a spiritual life, you know, you don't need necessarily need theory. You need to go out and pray and meditate or whatever you want to do. Uh -huh. But there's always been a noble and important part of the human condition is to build worldviews. Mm. And I think we're going for a phase of history where we've sort of forgotten about that in our over-enthusiasm, understandable enthusiasm for the incredible success of natural science. Mm. I think it's really important that we, that we return to it.
It's so interesting, Philip, how you use that word value, because it feels like the only things that we value currently are things that we can assign economic value to. The the mathematic materialist understanding of the human being has allowed us to generate technologies that generate wealth and capital or understand the human in a very fixed framework through things like algorithms. And then we kind of discount the rest of what a human being is, because if we can predict human behavior, then there is money value in that. And it certainly feels like the algorithm is a continuation of what Galileo has done. But this is the Futures Podcast. And and when I hear new ideas like panpsychism, I want to know how they apply to the sorts of future technologies and ideas that people get very excited about. And you mentioned it very briefly, this idea of AI and robots. I mean, what does panpsychism mean for AI? Is there some form of consciousness between the data sets? Yeah, I think there really are questions with AI that we're kind of not not at first base with. I mean, <laughs> it's actually a, a point of controversy, really. What is the connection between thought or intelligence or understanding and consciousness? I think people, I think people are maybe not aware that's that that this is hotly debated w- within academic philosophy. So still, I think that, that the majority receive view is that actually thought has nothing to do with consciousness. That Thought is just something to do with information processing. If you have a, you know, a complicated enough mechanism that can process information as we do, then it has thought, then it has understanding. Whereas I'm of the um, growing minority of philosophers who think, no, thought just is a kind of consciousness. Yeah. Perhaps the most highly evolved form of, if a creature doesn't really, doesn't have consciousness, it doesn't really have thought or understanding. I mean, the way to, you know, the way to think about this, imagine Commander Data from Star Trek, the next generation, or imagine a silicon duplicate of a human being. Let's say silicon things aren't conscious. You know, we don't, we don't know that yet. Could turn out to be true. Yeah. But you've got Commander Data here and, you know, you're talking about the issues of the day and maybe he's defending a certain view on how to deal with the pandemic or global economic difficulties. And, you know, he talks like a normal human being, but... By stipulation, he's it's just an unfeeling mechanism that's set up to behave like that. The question is, does Commander Data really have thoughts? Does he really have opinions? Does he really understand these concepts? You know, if, if you think thought is just information processing, then yes, he's not conscious, but he has thoughts. But, I, you know, I'm inclined to think if you're not conscious, you don't really have understanding. Mm. You, don't, you don't really understand anything. This debate was vividly framed with... Um, the philosopher John Searle's idea of the Chinese room. Hmm. He imagined a room in which there is a non-Chinese speaker who has a big book of questions in Chinese and answers in Chinese. And what happens is native Chinese speakers pass in questions in Chinese under the door. And this guy looks up the question, checks out the answer to give, and gives the answer. And so from the outside, if the book is complicated enough, from the outside, it looks as though the room understands Chinese. <laughs> but actually, the guy in there doesn't speak Chinese. Presumably, the room doesn't speak Chinese. And this was a very clever way of really giving us a vivid idea of what a computer is. An algorithm is, mm. is a set of instructions. This is really replicating for us vividly the idea of what an algorithm is. Communicating cells intuition that just following instructions isn't real understanding. So I think it's really important because if 
understanding and intelligence are essentially conscious things, then well, you're not going to create them artificially just by getting the right kind of information processing. You're going to have to build a mechanism that is conscious. And it's it's an ongoing thing what that's going to require. But one view I'm interested in, the integrated information theory of consciousness, according to this view, consciousness goes along at the level at which we have most integration of information. Mm. And if this theory turns out to be correct, actually computers aren't going to be conscious, at least if they're anything like computers as, as, as we have them now. Because, you know, although computers can store a lot of information, the way in which they store information is not so much dependent on the interconnections. If you take out a few transistors, you don't lose much information. Whereas the way the brain stores information is highly dependent on the interconnections. You know, every neuron is connected to 10,000 others yielding trillions of connections. So if you, if you take out a tiny bit of the brain, you lose an awful lot of information. And according to integrated information theory, that is the hallmark of conscious experience. So this is not to say we can't build artificial systems that are conscious, but what we're going to have to do if this theory is correct is look to ways of understanding information processing that are much more dependent on a sort of web or network of of connections in the system. It does feel like when folks talk about consciousness and AI, what they're really pointing towards again is that emergent property. If you get enough silicon to be complex enough, then suddenly, pop, consciousness is just going to suddenly appear within the AI. And the scariest thing that could happen is that when we start asking the AI whether it's conscious, the AI looks back to us and goes, well, you prove that you're conscious and we don't have a proof for it. They don't have a proof for it. You know, We just have to both accept that we're either we're both unconscious or or both conscious. There's nothing that we can do at that point. But things like mind uploading, you mentioned that very briefly in the opening of the book and with your tongue firmly in your cheek, but this idea that we can take whatever consciousness is and port it to another substrate, now how would something like panpsychism deal with this highly futuristic concept of mind uploading? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. I have a student working on the topic of mind upload right now, so I had a lot of time to think about this. I'm probably going to disappoint now, but I think it's something that's maybe a, a little bit hard to reconcile with panpsychism because mm. for the panpsychist, consciousness is the stuff of matter, right? Matter is ultimately in some sense made up of consciousness. Consciousness is what breathes fire into the equations. And so, well, my consciousness is the stuff of my brain. Mm. And so unless you're going to take the stuff of my brain and stick it in your computer, which I take it is not how we're thinking of mind upload. You're not going to get my consciousness. I think mind upload is dependent on the idea that what's important for consciousness is, is more just organization or informational processing. The software rather than the hardware, these are the kinds of things that get uploaded, not the stuff not the hardware, but the software. Whereas if, like me, you, you have a view of consciousness where um, it's the hardware, consciousness is the hardware of the brain, then upload starts to look a bit difficult. Although you needn't be a materialist, I think, to make sense of mind upload. The philosopher David Chalmers, he is a dualist. He's a kind of dualist philosopher. So he thinks consciousness is separate from the physical but he believes in special psychophysical laws mm. that connect up 
consciousness to the physical world. But he thinks those psychophysical laws connect consciousness not to the kind of hardware, but what those psychophysical laws are, as it were, interested in is not the kind of stuff of matter, but its organizational properties, mm. how it's structured computationally. He thinks that's what the psychophysical laws hook onto. I think if, like me, you think consciousness is the stuff of the brain, it's a bit harder to make sense of mind uploads. So sadly, I think we'll have to rely on, I don't know, cryogenic freezing or um, <laughs> recreating the brain or something, I don't know, or just just dying the old-fashioned way. A lot of this stuff that we've been talking about is very dependent on the scientific inquiry that we do today in the present. Do you feel like what we'll need is is brand new scientific methods that will be required to understand consciousness? And will they be scientific methods that are developed with the philosophers firmly in the room? Or should we just look to quantum mechanics and go, in actual fact, let's keep betting on this science thing because quantum mechanics might be the next new shiny cool thing that will eventually understand all of this. The philosophers, you can stay out in the lab for just a tiny little bit longer. What, what, what do you think, Philip? Yeah, I think the problem of consciousness is rooted in the way we design science. The way Galileo, mm. the father of modern science, designed science near the start of the scientific revolution. Our current scientific paradigm was designed to exclude consciousness. Mm. So if we now want to bring consciousness into the scientific story, we need to rethink what science is. And to do that, you need philosophers. You know, philosophy is what you do when the rules of the game are not settled. So I'm hoping this will one day be established science. The subtitle of my book, Galileo's Error, is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. Once you've got the rules settled, then it's science. But but at the moment, we're not at that place. We're not really at first base. And, you know, what's so exciting to me recently is to see scientists and philosophers coming together to lay the foundations for a new approach to consciousness. The panpsychist framework gels with their experimental work, you know, and they'd never maybe quite been able to totally articulate the idea, but there's some really interesting work coming out. Martin Picard in Columbia University, experimentally exploring the hypothesis that mitochondria in the brain should be understood as social networks. They're not to be reduced to underlying chemistry, but understood as sort of irreducible social networks. I mean, that doesn't imply panpsychism, but I think it fits well with it, with a certain kind of panpsychist picture. Just caught off the press this month, there's um, a, a special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies called Is Consciousness Everywhere, which is 19 essays on my book, Galileo's Error, by um, scientists, philosophers, including uh, leading scientists like Sean Carroll, Anil Seth, Carlo Rovelli, Christoph Koch. Some very critical, as should be, among these issues of which there is little consensus. But also some of the essays, for example, the physicist Lee Smolin proposes part of a way of rethinking reality in order to bring together general relativity and quantum mechanics, one of one of the big tasks of science, he thinks will will allow for consciousness to be understood as a fundamental feature of reality. There's another uh, interesting article, the experimental psychologist Jonathan Delafield-Butt, who in his work on autism, he's come to think that 
if we adopt a panpsychist rather than a materialist framework, this affords a much deeper understanding of autism mm. and has certain explanatory advantages. If you just think consciousness is some sort of emergent feature that's just kind of about how things behave at high level, then, you know, it's just a job for neuroscience. But if you think, you know, this really is a task that involves rethinking what science is, that involves postulating consciousness as a fundamental feature of reality, then we do need to rethink our scientific approach, not doing things differently, but moving to a more expansive conception of science. And I think that's going to require physicists, philosophers, and neuroscientists at the very least to come together in that interdisciplinary project. And it's already happening, which is very exciting. Well, with that wonderful call to action, Philip, this has been an utterly fascinating conversation. It seems like there's so much we're yet to discover, but I do want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Thanks, Luke. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for chatting. Thank you to Philip for his illuminating attempt to explain the fundamental mystery of human consciousness. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.